Hey, Lou. Hey, Kimmy. How are you? I'm good. This is Chaos and Creativity. For this is our second we, episode. Our second op- episode. We're doing it. We're doing it. Yeah. So this is Chaos and Creativity, a podcast for creative people. Yeah, exactly. So we figured that uh, for this episode and the next one, we would kind of give you a little bit more insight to us, to me and Lou. Via interviews. Yeah, interviews. We're going to interview each other. Yeah, so this is going to be a short episode. You're going to interview me, and then the next episode, I'll interview you. Yeah, and that's going to be a really long one because I have so much to say. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Why don't we start with the questions? All right. Um, I'm going to start with an easy one. How did you get started as a photographer? I got started as a photographer. Actually, the true story of how I got started as a photographer is when I was a kid, I was, I guess, about nine years old. And my grandmother was standing on a corner in San Francisco, and a bus took the corner too tightly, and the back tire popped up onto the curb and then popped down off the curb and somebody was taking a picture at that time out the window and the lurching of the bus caused the camera to fall out of their hands and it fell the camera fell down at her feet with a big dent in it so she gave it to my father and the light meter was broken but my dad said the camera worked fine so I used a handheld light meter I used his light meter and that was my first camera and I started taking pictures with that camera that sounds like the beginning of a movie (laughs) <laughs> it's it's a little idyllic and it's a little bizarre, but the true photography came in when um, I started shooting fashion, and that was uh, the story of that is I basically had a friend of mine named Lisa Kurth who was a model, and she was with the Gourmet Agency, and I took her to her shoots and uh, various other interviews for modeling, and I said, oh, this looks like a lot of fun, so I borrowed my dad's vintage 1970 Nikon camera, took pictures of two friends of mine um, who were very pretty and, you know, in noonday speckled light. I mean, these were just hideous pictures. They were horrible. And I used floodlights for the other one, a girl named Ingrid. And I went to the Gourmet Agency with this, by taking these two pictures, pasting them into a peachy folder. And, you know, those folders that used to have with like the sports figures on them <laughs> that you used for school. And I went to the agency and said, hi, I'm a photographer. And the receptionist is very kind. She took the, my portfolio back to the booking room where the agents were and there's this uproarious laughter and I figured that oh my gosh they must like me because they're laughing at me so she brought the folder back out to me and said you're not quite right we encourage you to uh, keep trying and so then I went downstairs one floor to the gourmet modeling school and went in there said hey I'm a photographer and they looked at my two pictures and were kind of you know, raising eyebrows and look at me wall-eyed a little bit. And they said, well, how much are you charging? I said, oh, nothing. I'm trying to learn, so I'm working for free. And they welcomed me in with open arms. Of course. So I shot, <laughs> yeah. So I shot a bunch of modeling school students for a while. And then as I was coming to drop off film at the modeling school one day, there was a guy in the stairwell because the elevator was broken. And he looked at me and said, what's that under your arm? And it was a proper portfolio at this time. And he looked at the pictures and said, well, the photography is not bad, but the models are hideous. And I said, well, that's your modeling school girls. And he goes, oh, please, come with me. That modeling school exists to pay our bar tab at Coletto's, which is down the street from the agency. And um, that his name was Michael Demartini. He started me on a path of doing model testing. And essentially what I would do is shoot pictures um, for portfolios for the models and bring the film back to Michael. And he would look at it and say, these are pretty good. And then he would roll up the film and throw it at me and said, look, if I want good, I'll talk to 90% of the photographers out there. If you're going to shoot for me, you have to shoot flawlessly. And he really, really shaped how I, how I approach my work, the, the diligence I used to approach my work. 
That also sounds like a movie. Every time you tell that story, I'm like, all of this just sounds like the beginning of some great epic biography. I, <laughs> it was, you know, I got really lucky. And obviously it wasn't as compressed and, and tight as I'm telling the story. I mean, there was like a lot of lulls in there. I was working as a lifeguard. You know, I had no money. I was, you know, it was, it's not as pretty as it sounds. Yeah. For the sake of, of, it's raining. It's raining. Is and it, also, just in case you don't know, we record our episodes in the car so this is our sound room this is our sound room which... and now it's being pelted <laughs> by raindrops <laughs> it's kind of romantic i feel like it's romantic it's very romantic story. exactly okay so my n- next question is you've never really had any other job than being a photographer and then owning your own business was there ever a time in your photo career when you were worried about money to the point where you thought about changing careers to something more stable um three times so after i graduated from usc and i pursued photojournalism for about two years, I got back from doing that and I was completely broke. And um, my friend Killian Kerwin, who is a producer at, in Hollywood, um, was working for Dennis Quaid and Kathleen Summers and he invited me along to be like the assistant of the assistant. So if there was like a low man on the totem pole, I was the one below that person. <laughs> but I got to read a lot of scripts and learn a little bit about um, how the movie industry works. After I finished working for Killian at Summer's Quaid Productions, I had saved enough money to go traveling again. And so I went and did that. And when I came back from that, I was really, really broke. I, but I wanted to do as much traveling as I could at a young age. And I had no way to get started as a photographer to make actually make money to support myself. So I went to a stock photography house called the Image Bank, which was housed in a mansion in the mid-Wilshire area of Los Angeles. And I went in and talked to the people there, and they said, we would like you, as a salesperson, you've got this great personality for selling photos. And I said, okay, great. I said, but I only went over for six months. That was like my thing. Get a job for six months, save some money, travel, come back. And they said, well, we would need a commitment of a year. And I said, I don't want to do that. So I started walking out and said, well, here's my number. Call me over the weekend and let's talk about how we're going to get you to stay for a year. When I walked outside, there was a big car shoot going on. It was David LeBon is a car photographer. And they had this huge set built and in front of the mansion. The mansion was a backdrop to the car ad. And, and I, this guy named David said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm trying to get a job. He goes, why do you want to work here? Why don't you be an assistant? And it didn't even cross my mind to be an assistant because I was self-taught as a photographer and I never even thought that you could get paid to be an assistant. Or I kind of knew it in the back of my head, but I didn't really know. So um, I became an assistant for LeBon Photography. And then when there was no work for me, I actually worked for free in the office. I like literally cleaning out drawers um, with the trade that I could ask them any question about how the business end of the big production of car photography was run and they would tell me. And so that's kind of how I learned a little bit more about the business side of it. That's interesting. You've like uh, just kind of created opportunities for yourself when there were none. Out of complete desperation. I mean, you know, it sounds like I'm being clever and and in fact it was just kind of like, okay, I've got to get a sales job, which is I will loathe. And then all of a sudden there was this thing right in front of me and David was kind and said, oh, you shouldn't do this and do that. So, and I just said, yes. Yeah. So that was me recognizing an opportunity as opposed to creating an opportunity. Totally. But I think like a lot of people just um, kind of just sit at, I do think there's a lot of people that just like sit and are waiting for the things to come to them. And yes. then are like, why is nothing happening for me? And you're like, you know what? There's nothing that's really below me right now. So I'm gonna, I don't mind being an assistant. I don't mind working at the 
the photo house and like learning and uh, continuing to educate myself post-education. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And one of the things about being an assistant taught me that you're just doing what's required to keep your creative vibe going. There was a concern that some assistants who were really, really good at it became professional assistants. Like they never pursued the creative career mm -hmm. because I mean, assisting, especially back in those days, was really, really difficult. There were very long days, and car photography at the time was like building a lot of sets and a lot of sandbags, and it's exhausting. And there were some assistants who just got used to the money. There was overtime money. There was a lot of money to be made who never bounced out because they never took time to be creative. Um, and being an assistant and then getting out of it was always something I knew I was going to do. And then what it taught me was after 9-11 happened, everything went down like every there, there was and I immediately as soon as that happened I, I even though I was directing commercials I mean I'd really kind of um, risen up in the ranks um, of the visual arts to the point where I was directing commercials I was very much a rookie director I mean it wasn't like a big director but I was making that move that all blew up that all evaporated and the first thing I did was suck it up and just hung my shingle out to shoot headshots because I knew while all the chaos in the post 9-11 um, year was happening, that until the tumult settled down, until the dust settled, that I just had to keep putting money in the bank. I had a small savings. I could survive for a little while, but I didn't want to see the savings dwindle. So I sucked up my pride and was shooting headshots, and that's how I survived in that weird transition period until everything settled down. That's and awesome. that's and that's, I think it's important to remember, um, but it's... The other side of the coin is it's also very difficult because it's how people see you and you have to put off, put on this air of like success because that's how people trust you. So it's, it's a very odd, conflicting thing to do. But with something like the catastrophe that was 9-11, everybody was scrambling. So there was no judgment. Like all the, we were, everyone in this country was so shocked that there was no room for any judgment in any avenue anywhere. Yeah. So... That's interesting. Um, what was kind of like your defining moment um, in your career as a photographer? Like, was there a point where you're, where you're like, whoa, I've actually made it. Like, I'm now a, a real photographer. Like, did you ever have that moment where you're like, I am, this is my job and, you know, kind of the like that pride moment where you're like, I'm a photographer, like I'm really doing it. Like, not just a headshot photographer yeah, anymore. You know, it's funny that you said that because I don't really have... You know, my first paycheck as a photographer was a girl lying in front of a pool and I shot up the long lens to compress the background and I got $750 and that was like my first year out. So I never really, I always just figured, oh, well, this is how I'm making money. It, it never, I, because I started so, so young, I never had that moment or like, oh, I'm a photographer. It's just, oh, I guess I'm a photographer. Yeah. And then I just kind of dealt with some of the looks that I got from other people, like, oh, you're a photographer, so you're not really having a real job. And I just kind of ignored it because I just didn't care. I mean, I often don't care what a lot of people think. And it, it just seemed like such a natural fit for me. Like, this is how I'm going to make money. So it's just what level of money am I going to make and how am I going to survive within this stuff that I know really, really well. And, I mean, I my started, you know, when I was a kid, I think it was 11 or 12, I was pulling cable on 
something called Young Sherlock Holmes. It was shooting in San Francisco, and somebody knew somebody and knew that I liked TV and movies. And I mean, how would you like to hold this cable the way the uh, you know the Union cameraman runs around doing this handheld work? And I said, this sounds like fun. So I've always been behind the scenes. I've always been keen on it. And so I've never really known what a real job looks like in terms of like corporate. I, I don't think I've actually ever submitted a resume anywhere in my life. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? That I can, is amazing. And I just, it just, it just, it's a, it was a, always a very natural fit. The one time that I realized that I sort of reached some level of something is I shot an ad for Honda and it was everywhere. My picture was on billboards. When you open the cover of a magazine, it was the full page, the double page spread in the opening of the magazine. And it was everywhere. And that was mind blowing to me. And then the second time was when I was at a party and the public service announcement for breast cancer awareness that I wrote and directed was on TV at this party on the speak screen TV. And I was like, Oh, that was just surreal. And then then the third time was when I was at a bar at a meeting in um, Oakland, California at, um, oh, there's a big fancy hotel. What's the name of that hotel? Oh, I know, I know nothing of fancy hotels. The, oh, I can't remember the name. It, it, they have a bar up there, and I was having a meeting up there with a client, and NBC had done a behind-the-scenes with me shooting some fashion shoot, and all of a sudden it was on all the TVs around this bar, and then everyone in the bar was looking at the TV and checking out the beautiful girls in the shoot, and then all of a sudden they were kind of looking at me like, oh, that's the guy, and that was, and then the client was like, why is everybody looking at you? And that was kind of a weird moment, too. So those are like my three pinnacle. Yeah, I feel like that because that's kind of what I was thinking. I feel like there is totally that moment where you're like, oh, my, I've made it. Like even you shooting like a Calvin Klein ad, it's just like for me, I'd be like at that point, I'd probably be like, I'm that's it. Shot Calvin Klein in the 90s, which was like the pinnacle of everything fashion. But it's so funny because you also are not really the type of person ever since I've known you to be um, very. I know it just kind of feels like you're like, I'm just. I'm going to just keep going along. I'm not going to just bank on this thing that I, that this good thing that happened is going to keep going, you know, which a lot of people I think have something great happen to them. And then for the next like 20 years, it's like, well, remember that time I did. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you said that because I think one of the perils of being creative for a living is that you can never rest on your laurels in this business. Like you could do something spectacular. And from the outside world, if you have any, moment of fame they think that you've made it yeah any moments of fame that i had i was typically the most broke that ever was and that's like the weird sort of paradox of it all you know you're like suddenly in this like limelight and you just you have no money because oftentimes like the limelight moments come because somebody knows somebody or puts you on tv or something like that which it's and it's it's a very interesting paradox that that happens um and Craig Titley, who's a screenwriter down in Los Angeles, when he and I have drinks, you know, three or four times a year, and we define it as this, that you're creating at this level, and most people are looking up to what you're doing and thinking, it's oh, that's pretty cool, it's pretty nice what you do. But as a creative person, you're always looking way higher than yourself, so you're always dissatisfied with your, where you're at. And so any of those moments that happened, like when I saw my picture on the billboards and for the first time was always really amazing and gratifying. And I would do a tradition of like taking myself out to dinner that night, like blowing some real money on some dinner with some friends, but then it was gone. And then it was like chasing after the next thing. <laughs> and, and I think that's, it's a healthy space to be in because 
you can try to rely on stuff from your past and it doesn't buoy anything in the future. Yeah. It's, you know. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, nowadays, there's kind of not as much money in photography and fashion in that whole world. Um, so if someone is aspiring to be a working photographer, what would you, what advice would you give them about making a living doing that? I think the most, the best advice that I can give right now, and it, it truly pains me to say this is it's more difficult to make a living as a photographer now than it ever has been in the history of photography. And there we could go talk for hours about all the factors that are involved in that but from purely a perspective of being successful create a situation where you have a job that's disposable so you can make your living so you can um be hyper intelligent about what you're spending money on photography is an industry that sort of tempts you to spend on a lot of gear and a lot of software and in the big cities you can rent anything that you possibly need so if you have like your base 35 millimeter camera and a lens that you can shoot headshots with or something that you can do that will just produce bread and butter money that you can do very quickly that's a great place to start everything else can be rented a lot of people inverse their business model say well i need to get a studio space or i need to get all this gear otherwise i'm not really a photographer your ability to be a photographer resides solely in your head so just like I can pick up an iPhone or anything and shoot a good picture because I've been doing it for 30 years. Um, that's it, it all, it all exists in your head. So mm -hmm. that's where the talent is. Um, and make sure not to get yourself into a lot of debt and make sure that you're living as you're trying to pursue dreams. And then when you hit something large, really really capitalize on it make sure every everybody knows whatever thing that you did like make sure the entire planet like spend a week doing nothing except self-promoting that you did this thing so people know that you're capable because you can have to do it over and over and over and over again yeah that's good advice actually that's i feel like that that's been coming up again and again just uh if you want to do something creative for a living maybe don't do it for a living if just do something creative and have something that's can support you because i do think there it's so stressful to try to make the thing you love the thing that you make money off of sometimes to the point where you stop loving it i agree with you but you also need to pursue it with the intent of being successful at it mm -hmm. and with success comes money but there there's not the room to be the starving artist anymore you have to be the you know the artist with the day job that also does art, but choose jobs that aren't critical, whatever yeah. those jobs are, you know, that, that people aren't like, you could walk away from if an opportunity came up, like, you know, I, somebody wants to send you away for 10 days to go shoot something and they want to pay some real money for it. Make sure that you're in a job that you can walk away from where yeah. you, you can get a hiatus from it. Or if you say, well, I'm quitting, it's, it's not going to hurt your resume or hurt your life or something like that. So yeah, totally. Okay. My final question. So, um, you, when you made the move from being a photographer to being a full-time entrepreneur, um, can you talk a little bit about what that felt like? Did it feel for you at all like you were losing a little bit of your identity of, as a creative? And um, I know we've actually talked about this before and there's so much interesting stuff to unpack because I do think 
a lot of people don't see being an entrepreneur and being creative as going hand in hand, which I actually think is wrong. But I do feel like you had some issues like letting go of like that old uh, persona a little bit. So to be completely candid, the thing that we're talking about, if not holding on to your past that I was just telling our listeners to do, I did too much of, you know, because I had this moment of, you know, where I was doing a lot of work. And when I started with the software company, Blinkbid, which was for photographers, it was sort of a side hobby. And then it became more consuming and my identity got lost in a big way. And I was also writing at the same time. And so I was neither full-time photographer, full-time entrepreneur, or full-time writer. And I felt very much like a dilettante in all those fields, even though photography has been my life for so long. And that psychologically, or I should say psychologically not having the commitment to one thing is, I think, very deluding and very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Because when you're sort of changing modes all the time, it can be sort of very disastrous emotionally because you, you don't know who you are. You don't know what you're doing. And as an artist, as a photographer, or when I'm writing, I tend to focus very, very specifically on what I'm doing because I want to produce really, really good work. And when that get, got diluted for a number of years, I mean, as you know, because we go back so far, it was like seven years that I was sort of in this weird space of not really understanding who I was. And I think it was very detrimental to how, um, the software company was doing great and the innovations that were happening there were wonderful, but the art suffered and the art is sort of like my air. So that's, that's where it got weird. Yeah. So. No, it, it's, it's interesting. I think that, you know, when we were talking about it, it's like, I've dated people who, you know, in the past were like successful at being, you know, they magazine publisher or something, you know, and with people, whenever they met anybody, if they were talking about like, oh, what do you do? Like, well, I used to do this, right. you know, and that's like how they led. Well, I used to be, uh, I used to have a magazine, you know, and, or I used to be in this band and it's just like, well, maybe don't leave with that because that's still part of your identity, but it maybe isn't really like the first thing that you are now, you know, which with you, it's like, you're an entrepreneur, you know, that doesn't mean that you're not a writer. It doesn't mean that you're not a photographer, but right now you're an entrepreneur beyond anything because it is your main thing. And it's like, for me, that's like me being like, well, you know, I do that. It's, I'm really trying to be like, I'm a musician. I'm a songwriter. Right. And everything else I am also, you know, I do, I am an activist. I'm a feminist. I have X, Y, Z. I do show, you know, I do all those things, but like, the thing that I still identify with and that is like the main thing in my entire life is music, you know, and that I'm sure that will change eventually, you know? And yeah. And it's funny you say that because for me, writing has become the main creative outlet of my life right now. You know, I, I can't, you know, photography has been with me for so long that it's actually part of my DNA now. Like it's, it's part of the molecular makeup of who I am. Um, in terms of writing, you know, I've been writing, getting paid for it. So quote unquote professional writer for 15 years now, but I'm just getting to the point where I feel like I'm getting pretty good at it. You know, it's, and that's, you know, everything takes 10 to 12 years yeah. to, and so I'm just kind of getting to that point, but writing is not sustainable in terms of making a living, especially now that I'm older, I have, you know, a ton more responsibilities financially. So, and 
I love the tech space. I love my software company and I love aiding the arts with what the software does. Um, and you know, there's a grand plan to start a philanthropic organization for the arts as the company grows and we have the financial attitude to throw money at that. So yeah, it's, it's all going to come back around. It's all, it's it all comes circle. back around. Yeah. But you know, it, we have to be polymaths now to survive in the new world that yeah. we have today. And that's, Maybe that's how we need to think of ourselves and maybe a good note to end the podcast on is like, it's okay to be a polymath because the days of being singular are over. But as you create the different facets of what you do, make sure you can do them all expertly. Yeah. And don't dilute it. Don't dilute it. Yeah. Perfect. See you later, Lou. See ya.